Hi everyone. Ahead of today's show on the great and too often overlooked Charles Burnett, we'd like to direct you to the Our Stories, Our Lives Response Fund and ask for a donation. This fund comes from the Portland nonprofit Open Signal, whose labs program acts as an incubator for black media makers and is turning donations into hundreds of stipends supporting black filmmakers in the area. We'd really appreciate you supporting their work. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real welcome one and all to a movie reviewing reappraising and genre hopping podcast on the playlist podcast network my name is chance solem pfeiffer and i'm noah ballard you're listening to be real and we're jazzed to be here with uh, another show bound by the work of a director. Noah, who are we talking about today? We're talking about Charles Burnett. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the movies we're talking about today are Killer of Sheep from 1978, To Sleep with Anger from 1990, and The Glass Shield from 1994. So... To Sleep With Anger is our official reason for being here. It's it's 30 years old. Um, Burnett is a really interesting figure. He is one of the black filmmakers who's part of what's called the L.A. Rebellion in the 70s, which um, is the first generation, basically, of black American filmmakers to go through film school, um, in his case, UCLA. Um so you have people like him and Julie Dash and Larry Clark and Billy Woodbury um, and people who start to tell very artistic stories of black life in America, but influenced by people you're taught in film school and the, the way that film school would, would shape your taste. So Killer of Sheep is his uh, thesis that becomes his first feature, um, but it's molded like a neorealist European film like Rossellini or De Seca, or he was a big fan of uh, Renoir. And it's interesting because we did, uh, we did a Gordon Parks episode not so long ago. Um, and who, who directed Shaft and Learning Tree and Lead Belly were the movies we covered from him. And he was a, you know, virtuoso photographer. Um, but you know, his movies seem to be driven by, not of course Charles Burnett is deeply talented, but his movies are kind of driven by like just his world experience and uh, otherworldly facility with kind of just learning how to do visuals on his own. And Burnett, I think, is much more patient and uh, trained. And um, I don't know. What do you if you had to characterize? Um, what do you th- after watching these? What do you think of him as a filmmaker? What are the what's a big takeaway? He's definitely really interested in the concept of like the black American family and how that kind of manifests into a larger community. Um, and it just so happens that all these movies are set in Southern California, which kind of plays at this idea of like, yeah, like these non-urban stories. Like we're still in LA, like they're still often waiting for the constructs of city life to come and like help them but it's not you know sort of the spike lee genre of you know 
guys hanging out in Brooklyn. It's a much different vibe. Yeah. Um, there's none of the sensational that makes Spike Lee movies so electric. These are much more, um, you know, slices of life and, uh, told with a lot of quiet and a lot of patience. Also, I think something interesting is that, um, so Burnett is part of the, one of the great migration generations. He's born in Mississippi and his family moves to, to Watts or just outside of Watts when he's three years old. And, um, at least two of these movies explicitly deal with the way, um, that black Angelinos kind of bring the pain and the tradition and the pride of the South, uh, as they put down roots in this new place, um, you know, a city that's defined mostly by the pursuit of money and fame and the ways in which that's a fascinating contrast. Absolutely. Yeah. The way in which like, you know, characters in an early Scorsese or like Sergio Leone, I'm thinking of um, Once Upon a Time in America, this idea of like people having this deep reverence for this quote unquote old country. Uh, it almost feels analogous to that where you like never see this thing, but you know that there's the weight of a different kind of life on these people who were suddenly thrust into, you know, the American make it or break it kind of thing. Mm hmm. So do you want to start with uh, Killer of Sheep, 1978? I would love that. We put up a link on our Twitter, by the way, to where you can rent it um, from, I think, a company called Milestone Films. But it's kind of hard to get your get your hands on outside of, uh, you know, theatrical re-screenings, which are, of course, not going on right now. So. Don't go to the movies right now. Don't, don't go to your local theater and expect them to be showing this semi-obscure movie from 1978. Yeah, do not demand that your local closed repertory theater get this movie in and play it. That's fine. Not till uh, later. Do it in the future. Sure. You are not a child anymore. You soon will be a goddamn man. Now... Be a man, stand up. Don't you know it's more to it than just with your fist? The scars on your mug, you talking about an animal or what now? You think you're still in the bush some damn way? You here, you use your brain. Here I stand Set in the Watts area of Los Angeles, a slaughterhouse worker must suspend his emotions to continue working at a job he finds repugnant. And then he finds he has little sensitivity for the family he works so hard to support. It's an interesting synopsis. It's accurate. Um, yeah. It's not really what the movie is though. It's not, yeah, not quite the experience of watching it. That aforementioned slaughterhouse worker is Stan, who's played by Henry G. Sanders, um, who was a friend of Burnett's from the area and, and went on to be, uh, to make a ton of television and have bit parts yeah. in movies like Selma. I read an anecdote that uh, Burnett picked him because he was fascinated with his head. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
He said he like had a really nice head. Uh, he's a handsome man. And he is he, a handsome man. But sure, I couldn't help thinking like during because I, I read this anecdote while I was watching it, and I was like, he does have kind of an interesting head. He's certainly uh, losing his hair in a way that you're like, oh, this guy's tired. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That and hairline that, has seen better days. That is the thing of, I mean, that's kind of, if if you were to describe the plot of a movie that sometimes feels almost, you know, completely vignette driven and nonlinear, it is kind of a like, what's wrong with dad movie? Can you, can we explain it? Yeah, it does have kind of like an avant-garde Mr. Mom quality to it, where it's just these episodes of this guy like trying to do something nice for his wife and kids by doing something miserable for himself and then having nobody appreciate it. Uh, or someone like, like there's that great kind of Chaplinian moment where they're carrying this huge heavy engine down this flight of stairs right. and they eventually haul it to the back of the truck and they put it like right at the edge of the truck and his buddy says to him, like, oh, it'll be fine. Like, don't, don't, you don't have to, like, chain it up or anything. It'll just sit there. It's so heavy. Because the guy doesn't want to move it a little bit more. Yeah, it's further like, into the bed of the pickup. Right. And th- so they do that. They drive 10 feet. And, of course, the inertia of the moving truck pushes the thing off and it cracks the, cracks the engine block. Yeah. And then they're like, well, it's ruined now. And then they just drive off. Right. I, I think of him as a visualist. I mean, he does he does write the, Burnett. He, this is yes. Um, I think he has written the script for all these movies, and God knows you and I tend to be script first people. Um, but I think that he's he's a cinematography first filmmaker. So like when I I love that you describe it as Chaplinian, but I also think that you know that's your that scene with the motor is your metaphor for say like the uh, the myth of incremental black success in America, right? We've seen them scrap and negotiate for a little long scene of them trying to get this motor, which they're just going to put in another beat up car. And his friend's like, what do you want to do with another junky car, man? Get it slightly better with a slightly better motor. And then after all that, they just like, well, that didn't work and drive off. Yeah. It's a really fascinating seen both technically and yeah i mean thinking about in a larger cultural context of course um but yeah and then there's also like the kind of fabulous uh again very like parabolic scene of uh the not having to make enough room for all the suitcases uh he takes the spare tire out of the car and then of course they get a flat tire and he doesn't have a spare right which is such a I don't know. The idea of like needing to hold on to things and it, because if you let go of them, you're going to need them kind of mm-hmm. mentality. It speaks to to like a like a a wisdom about poverty in a certain way that I found kind of interesting. Like all these scenes, there's these great shots too and I texted you about this shot. There's all these the all like the dramatic scenes are cut with interstitials with children playing but all like the play that they're doing is rooted in like playing with garbage or hurting each other or Mm -hmm. doing something that's like highly unsafe and it's score and he's like intentionally scored it with kind of like uplifting atonal music and it's sort of fascinating to look that look at his his portrayal of 
I mean, this is feels like the most urban maybe of the three, but like urban poverty on the West Coast. Yeah, Stephen James Taylor scored all of these movies. Um, and I think the scores in in all three are are pretty excellent for... In this one, it's really a kind of reprieve, I think. Um, because when you, when you think about a, a movie like... I, I don't, if you think about like a neorealist, black and white filmmaking tradition, you really tend to think about somebody who's going for, in a lot of ways, like the purest, most objective expression of struggle, right? Um, and But when the music comes in, when he brings in Gershwin or Earth, Wind, and Fire um, or Paul Robeson... Um, there is, there are these moments of like, oh, okay, all right. So I can actually sit in the slightly more kind of heightened emotionalism of this. Uh, probably the best example is the use of Dina Washington's This Bitter Earth. Um, oh, sure. Which factors into the movie in some pretty profound two uses. Let's talk about Stan a little bit. Because I do think that if there's a plot of this movie, like we said, it's it's driven through him. And he has this job you sort of slowly realize. It's actually kind of withheld in an interesting way, right? You first meet him and he's under the sink of his house trying to fix it. He seems exhausted. He's telling his friend he can't sleep. And his friend's like, have you tried counting sheep? Ha ha ha. Um, And you only realize a little bit later what that means. Um, And then you slowly sort of start to get closer and closer and closer in these interstitials of Stan's job at the slaughterhouse, literally killing sheep, closer and closer down the chute to the moment of their actual execution, which you see at the end. Um, And man, I was kind of, I was just overcome in a couple different ways. The main one being, you know, meatpacking, is like oh, also yeah. something that's in the consciousness again, right? Because it continues to be the epicenter in so many parts of the country of COVID outbreaks because of how terrible the job is and how terrible the working conditions are. Um, and it's so easy for people to be like, but this is essential work. Like this is where America's food comes from. So just do it. And this idea of the 50 year journey of this one job just being passed down the socioeconomic chain to more and more and more. Who's the most vulnerable population in this decade? They'll do right. it. Now, um, the film definitely literalizes the idea of like where you are in the food chain, uh, yeah. which is an interesting thing. And I mean, it's funny how he chooses to shoot the sheep in a similar way to how he shoots the young children. Undeniable, yeah. And that's, I mean, clearly on purpose. As just a know. wash of limbs. Yes. And like, you don't know what's going to happen. And for both like groups, you're kind of concerned because it's almost like you don't see either of them get slaughtered, but you kind of know violence is coming. There's a moment where Stan is talking to his wife. The character doesn't have a name, um, but the actor is Casey Moore who's in several of the of the L.A. Rebellion filmmakers' movies, um, where he doesn't say, I need a new job. He just says, I need a job. And it's such an odd kind of omission of what would be the obvious way to say that. And yet I think for me, the read is like, this line of work has consumed his mind and his spirit. And it's, you know, 
it's what you're supposed to do, right? To achieve right. some version of the American dream that the even the front of his house says is happening, but the back of his house says is not. It's interesting that on all three movies, at one point or another, one character says to another, just tell me how to make money. Mm-hmm. And that kind of feels like something that, I mean, is definitely the slaughterhouse in this one. It's just like the absolute last rung of the thing you can do to get by. You know, these movies are all very concerned with the choice, I guess, occupationally that these people have picked uh, to get by, Mm -hmm. at least the protagonist of them. I do want to say, though, that the movie's got some really kind of like nice and even comical moments. I feel like we're making it sound like somewhat of a downer. Uh, yeah, it's not a tragedy. It's not a tragedy. It's definitely tragic in places, but there are moments of joy. Like, I think the best scene of the movie is the one where Stan's wife like confronts the two guys. Yeah. And I love, this is just like an IMDb script joke, but on IMDb under the quotes here, it says for the line delivery, confronting two acquaintances of Stan's who are trying to recruit him to help with a revenge murder. (laughs) So good. But yeah, she gives this really sort of impassioned speech about, you know, why are why are men so obsessed with violence uh and that's and just like their their small egos and you know she really makes a compelling point and like is victorious in that moment you know and i think that burnett clearly has an appreciation like for this type of character uh in their ability there's a lot of under sort of bubbling under the surface like strong black female characters rooting the morality of all three of these movies. Absolutely. I'm really glad you pushed us back this direction, by the way, because I think it is the takeaway, um, which is that so often, especially when, you know, white audiences and critics try to engage with black movies, it's sort of like the same set of issues of like well does this thing make your life okay it's like well can you gather around the community what about the power of family um you know what about um uplifting oneself through education like does that make the circumstances that i'm looking at better in the end and this movie i think is so um powerful in either subverting or just blowing up that conversation because by the time you've watched 90 minutes of black and white Watts in the 70s, you know that there are kids who are eager to learn, there is happiness, there is a community support, there is entertainment that's fairly innocent, there is a notion of nine to five stability, there is a wife who wants to love her husband, but it's not enough. Like, all of those things are there, but at the end of the day, like, of course it's not enough. Yeah, there is something refreshing about it not being kind of a Hollywood model of, of like, oh, if only like this character behaved this way that they would get the thing. You know, that's really not the model here, which I think is great. I mean, it explores that system like you were talking about, but it's just also deeply concerned with like characters in a situation. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think they're overly political like even the it's funny i mean the the glass shield which we'll get to is probably the most overtly political of all without it yeah without a doubt 
Um, but yeah, I, I kind of like the fact that it's not a morality, like personal responsibility kind of thing, but nor, nor is it like so quick to like point out things that like need to be, I don't know, fixed. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a protest movie. It's not a documentary, but it is like a snapshot. You know, it, I think it goes back to something that uh, we talked about with Cane River, which is um, all the things that we've just talked about that are not here are things that explain a movie like this to white audiences. And this is a movie about, I think the term was intramural black life. Like you and I are not present in this movie as characters or, or as anticipated, over-anticipated watchers. But yeah, like you said, there are funny things. Um, the line, <laughs> the line, you're about as tasteless as a carrot, <laughs> which the, the woman that they're buying the motor from says that to the guy who's hitting on her. Um, and there's also the great funny bit where I think Stan's pulling up to go to work and there's all the people in the car and there's a beer on the windshield. And you're like, how'd the beer get on the windshield? And the guy reaches through and you realize that, there is no like, windshield. That was almost like a naked gun, like Zaz level totally. visual joke. It's great. Because that is your question, like, how did the beer get there? And, like, how is someone going to get it? And are they going to, like, pull away before what's their plan? someone... Yeah, what's their plan? And then he just reaches through. Yeah, those are fun magic tricks. It has a certain, like, Jim Jarmusch thing to it, too, where he trusts the people on screen, Burnett, uh, enough to just, like, shoot and see what happens, you know? And I think that's, I mean these mainly at this point, amateur actors, like they get physical with it. Like he gives them stuff to do. That's what I think is good about this. Like he's either stands, either repairing something or he's cleaning out some facet of the, of the slaughterhouse, you know, or they're carrying that engine or the kids are throwing rocks at each other or jumping over something, but he's interrogating like the physical space around him. You know, I think what I like about this movie um, is the idea that, it's a movie that is not just set in a world, but it, it exists in a world. You know, so many first debut movies, I feel like when we do exercises like this, are so like, oh, people are standing around giving meaningful lines in like houses that have been decorated to look like something. But like, be in that house, like have things falling apart around you. Like that's so much more visually interesting. I agree with all of this. And I feel like this, it's an unscientific way to put it, but... um you know, we've all seen art movies that make you watch stuff that are like, you're going to sit there while I do what I'm going to do because that's art. And this is a movie that lets you watch things. Um, yes. And that just feels so much better. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think those going in with the anticipation that this is going to be like a straightforward movie with like a beginning, middle and an end are going to be bored and or disappointed. Uh, it's really not that. And it does exist, I would say, more in an art space than in a commercially viable space. I mean, this oh, movie definitely. has a, a fantastic uh, history to it where it like took two years to make on alternating weekends and then took two years to edit and then disappeared until like Steve Buscemi like, found it and premiered it at Sundance in the, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um but it has that vibe to it. It's a movie that you can tell, you know, the the artifact of it, the creation, the existence of it to begin with is inherently interesting. Absolutely. 
I'm really glad that you brought up Jim Jarmus actually, because I think that's when you're when you're navigating the sort of inherent history of inequality of like, okay, so what happened to the first black generation of film school students? All those people I just listed. Maybe you know one film of theirs, you probably don't know any, but you know, before we started researching these categories, I I didn't. Versus like here's Jim Jarmish also a very arty person, a very well-studied cinephile coming about at the same time, how does he get to make 20 movies? Right. And yeah. yeah, you you have to, I mean, if you held Burnett's career up to Jarmusch's career in level of like technical quality, it's a mirror image. Totally. You know? So it's so far. I mean, that is such a disparity that, I, yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, I do want to give a shout out to uh, uh, Robert Daniels, frequent uh, playlist contributor, and I know he's been a guest on on Ryan Oliver's podcast before. But he did a an online seminar at the at the Coolidge Theater in Massachusetts where they were showing this, um, and he very wisely was like, he didn't say this part exactly, but even if Burnett did not have the the prolific career supported by an independent filmmaking industry that he should have you can see the influence in barry jenkins i mean think about the way that medicine for melancholy looks and the comparison that robert drew out was the uh, kids running and tackling each other in the field in moonlight has a has a strong resemblance to the just the absolute kind of freedom but also trying on masculinity and aggression that you see in killer of sheep uh plug in the rating let's do it on be real we rate movies in two categories a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability so what are the four possible ratings i don't care good good movies are both well made and highly entertaining the fugitive parasite rear window or the hunt for red october once more we play our dangerous game Good bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to <clears throat> King Todd, asshole. <clears throat> Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I do think, as I said, this is, like, an important movie, and I agree that it's, like, on a bunch of lists for seminal cinema. But without that central, overarching plot... I do think that by our rubric, it is a good bad. I'm that makes sense. Um, I'm gonna give it a good good because I, I think that there probably is, there is more to to find on on rewatch for sure. I also I think that the character of Stan is kind of fascinating because he he's the first one of these Charles Burnett characters, and I want to talk about this with Harry in To Sleep with Anger, where um. He's behaving one way, but everyone else in the movie is like treating him or reading him in a way that he is not presenting. And it makes for this, I think, a really 
complex character through this kind of storytelling sleight of hand. Um, I think this movie is really good. I'm going to give it a good, good. So let's go to 1990 and to sleep with anger. And by the way, so this is where I should say we're jumping over what is considered um, another of Burnett's prominent films, which is my brother's wedding. It's on Criterion Channel if you want to watch it. I unfortunately ran out of time this week. Um, but there are a ton of Burnett's short films on Criterion Channel as well. And then a, a, a really great kind of hour-long interview thing of Burnett just walking around his old neighborhood in Watts talking to Robert Townsend of Hollywood Shuffle fame um, about how he makes art and what he remembers and how he shot Killer of Sheep. So if you want uh, more info, there's a Charles Burnett tab on Criterion Channel calling your name. Okay, Noah, what's our synopsis? And please also do read the tagline for To Sleep With Anger. A charismatic old acquaintance drifts into town, stirring up trouble for a mild-mannered family. And of course, the tagline for this movie, which is essentially saying the same thing. When Harry comes to town, he brings good times, bad times, and a lot of trouble. You paused for the dot 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 there. For that sure. was my pausing um, for the ellipsis. Yeah, well it's done. much like Once Upon a Time. Yes, in Hollywood, it's a rest. It's a full rest. That's right. Do not skimp on the full rest. Um, Let me ask you this off the bat. So that? Harry is, of course, Danny Glover. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen Danny Glover in a role where he wasn't just like the? the backbone of morality of whatever universe he was occupying. I have never seen creepy Glover. Uh, color purple. Okay. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, but I know what you're saying. This is not Roger Murtaugh. No, Um, nor is it the manager from angels in the outfield. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and he's not clearly not in that sort of like emeritus status that he has now in like Sorry to Bother You and Last Black Man in San Francisco. Or um, Be Kind Rewind. Sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this I like I love that you're starting with Danny Glover because this movie made me like look back at the just like the number of movies that he had done and be like, did we underrate this man? Because this character also just has nothing to do with Danny Glover, right? This, like, this slick southern con man gentleman is as different from sort of, like, the upright, artistic, Bay Area, you know, theater and movie and political icon as could possibly be. Like, it's a total transformation. Hi, I'm Danny Glover. I've recently had the opportunity to be in a very special motion picture called To Sleep With Anger. It's the first major film written and directed by noted filmmaker Charles Burnett. To Sleep With Anger. It's a film about old friends. Must be 30 years or more. I'm telling you, Harry is nothing but evil. <laughs> That's bad luck to touch a fellow with a broom. Oh. Oh. <laughs> One must be turning over. Take me to the wall. Take me to the wall. Are you a friend here?
said that if Harry sets foot in this house one more time, that I'm taking Sonny and leaving. And just as I say that, who do you think is coming up the steps? Harry. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that. He's, I, I'm, what I was saying in the opening there was that I've just never seen him like this before. And that's like almost one of the funniest things about this movie is that he, yeah, he's this huckster, this slimy guy, and he is absolutely 100% a creep in every frame that he's in. He, like, doesn't let up. The only thing that lets up are the people around him just giving in. Otherwise, he's always a monster. So this movie opens with a Sister Rosetta Tharp song, and you see Gideon, the patriarch of this family that Harry comes to visit. Gideon's played by Paul Butler. Um sitting in sort of his, his powder blue church clothes. And it's unclear whether he's sort of just like outside the atrium of a church or maybe he's at a wake. Um, his shoes catch on, on fire and you see this fruit. And there's, all, there's this very kind of slathered on commentary at the beginning. Um, I think it's fair to say that Harry is the devil. That's the, yeah. I mean, that's obviously the implication of this. Uh yeah, it almost smacks of something like the opening of um, Big Chill or something. Yeah. You know, where mm-hmm. you see this man, like, sort of, I mean, literally let, lit on fire. Um, and it also smacks of a, a little bit of camp, which I think the movie kind of has and doesn't want to tell you about, but definitely has. Definitely. Um, it's a ve- I think it's a very sly movie um in some ways because um yeah you think it's going to be this sort of high-minded biblical allegory which in some ways it is but it also manages to be maybe appropriately uneven in ways that kind of like subvert and humanize that one of the my favorite review of this movie that i've read is um io itabiri who's a great comedian who i know from podcasts and she's got a great letterbox profile her review of this movie was a was a hot five stars and it said only mother wishes um because aronofsky just has so little fucking fun in teeing up that uh you know kind of exploitative damaged self-serious allegory and and this i think this movie has a lot of a lot more fun you think this movie is like an allegory to or analogous to mother in certain ways, for sure. There's Cain, there's Cain and Abel brothers. What? That's true. Can I throw out like a hot take? Yes. I almost think this movie like has more in common with a movie like Beetlejuice. <laughs> uh, no, I think that that makes sense. Because I think, I mean, the camp I was talking about like comes out in a way, and this is like two years after a movie, uh, the seminal Tim Burton movie. Um, that you called actually, Bad Bad. that great. Yeah, that I called mm-hmm. Bad Bad. But it, it, like, kind of expects these characters to be, like, so stubbornly set in their ways, so much so that, like, violence and death are, like, on the table and may or may not be played for laughs. Mm-hmm. You know what you have to do now? What? Say Beetlejuice three times? But no. isn't Danny Glover kind of... He's almost like the Beetlejuice character. I'm not disagreeing. I'm so glad that you brought this up, but you realize now that you have to compare Glass Shield to Birdman 
because you've compared each of these first two movies to a title from our Michael Keaton off the deep end episode. That's really interesting. You are a big weirdo. <laughs> but that's no, fine. I, I think you're right. I, I I think that's a great comparison, even if like, you know, superficially the movies don't like Beetle I would not think of Beetlejuice, but you're right. Um, no, if somebody described this movie to you after seeing it, there's no way you'd be like, oh, like Beetlejuice. <laughs> but if you're concerned with the same commentary that a movie like Beetlejuice is making, you know, with oh, what happens when this kind of like mischievous huckster is thrown into the works and yeah, like he knows how to hauntings. grease the system in a way that like maybe is the reason the system's broken but also maybe he can cuz he's so like sympathetic to all the men around him like they all like kind of want to be him and all the oh, women yeah. are just terrified of him you're dead on though it is a once you invite a ghoul into your house movie how do you get rid of him yeah it's a college roommate from hell uh, movie <laughs> it's like yeah it's beetlejuice meets you me and dupree okay that's too far um mm-hmm. Let's talk about okay. So let's talk about the character of Harry. Like Stan, I think that Harry is positioned a certain way, right? He's positioned in the opening as having these sort of like satanic qualities, especially <laughs> not com- sleeping in a bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I just you know, sleep on a pallet on the floor. <laughs> he's just got all these superstitions. He doesn't go to church. Um, you know, this is a. He- smart looking suits in every shot and you know the way he interacts with people like you said is unabashedly creepy if this is a portrayal of the devil one of the things i actually like about it is that if you were the devil why would you you wouldn't have to hide that fact half the fun of being the devil is in you know tempting people while making no apologies for behaving the way you're behaving and harry doesn't um but like stan the way that other people start to relate to him makes you question like what what you think you know about this character like he he never is like hey man you got to um you got to like disown the church or you got to sell the house to gamble the money or like you got to cheat on your wife even though he does sort of kind of suggest that at one point he um, does suggest that real men have at least two women <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's such a great lie where he's like hey man have you ever heard about a real man who didn't have at least two women and the other guy's like nope <laughs> <laughs> hard agree I um, would agree with that assessment real men typically two plus women <laughs> um, he's just pushing the buttons of the people's like pre-existing tendencies he never does anything that outlandishly evil Yes. I mean, he does kind of take the Gideon character like on a forced march and like maybe causes him to have like an anxiety attack. It's unclear what puts Gideon in bed. Yeah. And or he may have poisoned him. Whatever it happens to be. But it's so interesting. There's this really moving scene where they're at the train tracks and they're reminiscing about being the guys who like put down these tracks and suddenly we're like in the South. Yeah. And suddenly we're like in Gideon's POV and he like 
sees him and his young comrades 20 years ago doing that very thing. And then he's bedridden basically after that. Mm -hmm. I think it's in the vein of sort of like some classic 20th century black literature. Like it's, it made me think of like reading their eyes or watching God in high school where there is no magical realism happening but all the characters are sort of like larded with a kind of folkloric importance that when they do it, like it feels like they're capable of anything. So when the marbles fall off the fridge, it's just like what supernatural force made that happen? When in reality, you didn't see anything. There's no magic yeah. in the movie. Yeah, there's that those two interesting moments where some gust of wind or God comes in and like knocks over these fucking marbles and yeah it it almost exists in this kind of again like i think it's a campiness that like the movie's gonna have its revenge on the shitty person there's almost Mm -hmm. like that agreement made up front because of how you know it's chekhov's marbles sure but i yeah i just love that you know harry at the end of the day kind of is just He's just a man. I mean, depending on what your belief system. Um, He's a very bad man. Sure, sure, sure. But like, it's it's it, it makes you if if you think of this as like okay, so it's like the you know good and evil and our origin stories is humanity. Like the those forces must have first been enlivened in our minds by just observing a bad man and extrapolating his power from there. Can we just talk about the so one of the things I neglected to say with Killer Sheep is I just love the way that Burnett constructs a room, right? He, mm. You think of like his shot chart in the scene where Stan goes to buy the motor, where you've been in the room for two minutes and you don't even know that the guy who's gotten his ass kicked is on the floor next to this giant motor. <laughs> he like really holds on to like revealing certain things and the the, you know the seeping surrealness of the fish fry party where like all of Harry's kind of like random old friends start showing up and they get like corn liquor and they, they go in the kitchen and that guy starts to sing CC Ryder. Um, <laughs> it's such a, cause you know, like, again, you like look at the, he's, he does a great job. Like he'll show you the house and you're like, Oh, that's a pretty nice looking middle-class house but then like you start to get certain camera angles of the of the kitchen and the lamp and the and the blues and all of a sudden you're you are kind of like are we in like the devil's hut right now where are we yeah he kind of like takes over rooms and populates them with his like sycophants uh yeah or whatever which is really and it's not you know animal house level stuff it's just like people start showing up you're quite right and then eventually i mean of course there is that confrontation when of course we have a powerful black woman being like get the fuck out of my house and it's funny because he really doesn't push back on it at all like that's where this movie kind of you know maybe questions the 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 ease or difficulty with which one can like get rid of this kind of spirit. Like maybe it doesn't take evoking him three times. Maybe it's just the once. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, is it too early to talk about the end of the movie? 
I don't know. I mean, we have to because it's hilarious. Um, But let's first talk about some of the other characters in there because one of the other puppets that Danny Glover kind of plays with uh, is Richard Brooks, his babe brother. Uh, You may recognize as Law & Order's ADA Paul Robinette. Mm -hmm. The OG, right? The OG, yeah. 1990 to 2006 on a guest episode. Um, but yeah. And one of the things, one of the dynamics in the movie is that this guy is a lot like my younger brother. You ask him to do something and he says, Oh yeah, like in a minute. And then he never does it. And then somehow it's your fault for asking him to begin with and not asking Noah who will then do it. Um, I feel like that sums it up. No, but he's, He's a he's a sympathetic character. I mean, he's raising a child with this woman he clearly loves. Um, but yeah, he's a little bit lazy and wishes he had the answer to how to get to his level of financial success without putting in the requisite work because he sees his father and his brother succeed uh, in his estimation with no real effort. Hmm. Yeah, it's also, he's representative of this the cultural clashes that kind of make this movie where he's a mortgage loan officer and his, or wait, or is his wife a mortgage loan officer? No, I think he is. They both have like white collar yeah. jobs and are not raising their son in the way that Gideon would want. They're constantly leaving him around, around the grandparents house. Um, and so, yeah, you just have this, this clash of, you know, how far back into, you know, Southern Baptist traditions do we want to get? But then it also the movie sort of positions like uh, Christianity as actually just sort of like a middle point. And if we go back before that, there are more powerful, um, you know, like pagan remedies that, uh, that Susie played by Mary Alice uh, tries to use to, to heal Gideon. And then the, the reverend comes over and he's like, sister, I'm disappointed <laughs> that you would put these leaves on his feet. Um, <laughs> Before praying in any capacity. Yeah. Right. Can we talk about the fact that like uh, the joke of the movie is the title to sleep with anger. I mean, the expression is don't go to sleep with anger. So the missing words there are just don't go. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, and that's kind of the thing that Harry gets everyone to do, right? They all have these sort of pre-existing difficulties and impulses with each other. But if he, they like, know in their hearts they are not supposed to do that thing, but they do the thing. Yeah, so he loosens them all like twenty percent, um, and then they're with his corn liquor. They're just emboldened to sleep with anger. Um, I'm I'm gonna strongly recommend this movie. So if you don't want spoilers, actually, maybe skip ahead like three or four minutes because we're gonna talk about the end of it. Um, but that scene where Susie saves her sons by she's a midwife, right? And she essentially bur- like births the knife out of yeah. The, she like cuts an, like an umbilical cord on her own hand out of the struggle is so touching yeah. and is staged so well. Um, it's beautifully shot too. Um, yeah, that's a really stirring scene. And then like this weird kind of jokey moment that they have in the hospital and you kind of know that the tension's broken. Yeah. She's Um, given like a, she's rebirthed her family basically. Basically. Yeah. 
And then, of course, in the next scene, the fucking marbles uh, kill Danny Glover. And it's right. fucking hilarious. Well, That's what I thought was so interesting about this movie because it does get, I would say, a little melodramatic at the hospital and in the, the preceding scene. But then when we get back to the house, it's like, how is this thing going to end? And then to have like literally the last 15 minutes of the movie having Danny Glover as a corpse on like halfway between their living room and their kitchen is hilarious because people just like come by and like have lunch and like chit chat and like do the things they need to do and pay their respects. And this body is just like sitting there rotting. That's the Tim Burton stuff I'm talking about. Sure. Yeah, the county won't come pick him up. So there's a little bit of <laughs> there's a little bit of like a killer sheep glass shield social commentary in there. But but then yeah, it, it it is the thing that carries off the comedy element of the rest of the movie, which is like, okay, so Harry's been asked to leave. Like, when is this mouse who was given this cookie? How far can he stretch it? And I found myself actually in the scene before he trips on the marbles. He's been asked to leave by everyone, but he finds time for one more cup of stolen coffee and that's why he goes back in the kitchen to put the cup away um and yeah you can't you can't get rid of the ghoul if the ghoul maybe or maybe not willingly just dies on the floor of your house you can't you can't kill the demon without murdering the little boy (sighs) now the little boy's fine in this one uh, yeah, no, I think that's that's really smart. Uh, but then his his like last beat on this earth, shall we say, is just so fucking embarrassing, and it's like kind right. of satisfying in a time where there's like a, a pretty notable monster that we're all dealing with on a daily basis, who you wish would just like end in embarrassing fashion. Like this is a very cathartic movie. Great physical acting during the heart attack. Oh. I've never, he clutches the arm, he like flips onto one side, and then he like flips onto the other, and he's expired. It's really good. I think I'm going to give this movie a good good. I think it's definitely, not to spoil my our next review, but my favorite of the bunch, uh, and just stands up as a good movie, both technically, like it kind of, it almost feels like a spiritual successor to a Tennessee Williams kind of family in a house drama Uh but it's got so much humor and heart and it's playing in the almost comedy space of like the late 80s and early 90s in a way that, yeah, I think I could definitely watch this movie again. Yeah. And with a big allegory, if you are, if you want to care about that, but you don't necessarily have to because the movie will subvert itself for you. Um, amazing Danny Glover. Yeah. Seek this one. Seek this one out. It's good. Good for me as well. As we get into Glass Shield, which did you say, is it 94 or 95? 94. 94. To Sleep With Anger had a movie star in it. Like, Danny Glover in 1990 has got some Lethal Weapon movies. He's in the Predator sequel. Um, He's, uh, I think, just been in Lonesome Dove, too, which is a huge fucking deal. He's great in Lonesome Dove. Um, You know, he's part of the reason that this movie was able to to get financed. Um, but they, he, you know, it was done pretty dirty according to Burnett by the industry that, um, everything was in place and then they put it in 17 theaters. Um, there's no reason to sleep with anger. Shouldn't have made a little money. Um, and then you, that's a, that's a key component of, uh, glass shield as well, because you, it feels like the most mainstream movie of Burnett's career 
because it's sort of fashioned in the, you know, uh, betrayal cop drama crime movie kind of way with Ice Cube. <laughs> Um, but Ice right. Cube is barely in this movie. Well, that's the funniest thing about this movie is that like it stars Ice Cube and Elliot Gould, but they're like the fifth. They should be the fifth build characters. There's nobody famous playing like a large role here. Right. Um, so yeah, Burnett has talked about how Miramax kind of fucked him on this one by cutting the trailer to make it look like they Ice seem Cube to have a star. legacy of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, when you see the Miramax thing come up at a movie now, go like, Of course. Every single time. Audibly. I was like, Lucy was playing on her computer when I was watching this. And it was like, dun, 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 dun. And I was like, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of deep-seated corruption. It's Weinstein we're talking about, folks. Obviously. Miramax made him overwrite the script basically past a point where he felt comfortable and that was that was really interesting to hear because one of my notes was like these other movies do have such subtlety to them and this one is a lot of people just like screaming about the most obvious parts of like their character and their jobs and police corruption and yeah, a lot of just, subtext screaming my favorite thing yeah and he was just like, nope, Miramax and the other producers were just like, this needs to be clearer, it needs more, it needs more, it needs more. To the point where he said that then the French producers like came back and read the script and they were like, Charles, this is really overwritten. And he was like relieved by that. <laughs> he was like, thank God, somebody had some sense. Um, the fucking but French. Yeah, that's where we are with, uh, with Glass Shield. Well, it sure feels like that because it's super overwritten. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's our synopsis, Noah? Two cops become compelled to act against corruption and discrimination within their own police precinct. Partner, I have a gun. Keep your hands where I can see him. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. We have a witness, a gun, and your funky attitude. How do you plead? Man, I didn't do it. Now, the only one who can save his life... The serial number on the gun I picked up with Teddy Woods has been changed. ...is a cop who must risk his own... ...in a world filled with violence. Don't go looking into a loaded gun. There is a possibility that someone in the sheriff's department is involved in all this. Their only weapon is the truth. Ice Cube, Lori Petty, Michael Boatman star in the movie critics are calling a no-holds-barred thriller. Have you lied to this jury? I don't want this ship to sink. Heart-stopping suspense. I didn't kill nobody. Freeze! I didn't rob nobody. I never even used a gun. Your two cops are Michael Boatman playing J.J., I just will always think of him as like the goofy, parenthetically gay question mark coworker they have in Spin City with Michael Fox, mm-hmm. Michael J. Fox, Mike Fox, as you, I call him. You call him Mike Fox. <laughs> <laughs> um, JJ is based on the first black sheriff to integrate the. Signal no, John Hill Johnson department. Yeah. Um, and the other cop is played by Lori Petty. And these two, uh, Lori Petty. Famous from, for being the 
kid brother Kip from or kid sister Kip from League of Their Own. Sure. And point and break. Quite literally nothing else. Point break. Oh. That's a blind spot for me. I've actually never seen point break. Holy shit. <laughs> this is your fucking wake up call, man. <laughs> Is to that watch a line point, from the movie? I don't get that to reference. To watch Point Break. I <laughs> uh, don't know. I won't hear it. Um, yes. It's it's JJ's first days on the job with the LA County Sheriff's Department. And you and see... he's pumped. <laughs> he is excited to be a cop. He loves to... Be, and he's going to use it... I would argue at the beginning like he is a bad cop. Yeah. Like you're not supposed to like lean over the hood of the person you're pulling over his car and be like hey sweet thing like where are you going today and then not give her a ticket for flirting back with you he is easily corruptible because then the next thing that happens with him as a police officer is he sees a wrongful arrest and seizure of uh ice cube and the woman he's with and immediately goes along with the white police officer. Parenthetically, did we talk about the fact that he's the only black police officer in the precinct? Yeah. And he immediately goes along with a ruse from his buddy. Yeah, to profile Teddy Woods. To profile and then to make more genuine this arrest that is going to also close an unrelated case that involves like a similar nine millimeter gun than the one they confiscated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but he like lies on the stand and says that things that didn't happen happened. Right. Yeah, you're right. He is easily corruptible. He gets into the thin blue line very quickly. Oh yeah. He definitely like, puts up that bumper sticker uh, with the with the blue line and the American flag. And then the 100%. rest of the movie, he's trying to scrape that shit off. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. Um, yeah, one of the things that's aged the best about this movie, frankly, is just that somebody made a movie about how terrible the L.A. County Sheriff's Department is. Because it is, a, of all the fucked up law enforcement organizations in this country, it is one of the most and continues to be this whole thing of like the rough riders, like these, these groups or these teams that are known for specific violence within the sheriff's department is still something that happens in that sheriff's department today. Um, you know, they like sort of like private awards and commemorations of like people who use violence unnecessarily and are sort of like uplifted within the department. Um, it's a really shitty organization and still is. Interesting. Yeah. And so a lot of the things it calls out about corruption, I think are very on the nose, but sometimes corruption in these ways can be very on the nose. And in fact, actually some of the smarter um, points in here, I think are the ways in which like, the cops are so emboldened in their behavior that somebody, some other enabler has to tell them like, no, 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 no. You need to like at least code it. Like the, when the DA is coaching the sheriffs through the, the pretrial speeches and Bono who pulls over ice cube is like, well, I mean, we have a policy to basically to pull over any black person in a nice car. The DA is like, no, you don't. Well, are you serious? <laughs> you have to <laughs> you have to say 
you have to say there was a traffic violation. You yeah, your they mind. had to have done something, right? Yeah, but I kind of wish that. I mean, of course, this is from movie from 1994. Um, you know, but it does sort of lean a little heavily on the. I mean, it's incredible to me that this movie hasn't been licensed by like HR departments around the country as sort of like a, a learning tool or something. Because sure. it really like kind of bashes you over the head with like, this is the racism. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the Rodney King had just happened. Mark Furman That's had right. just happened. But you're, there's something about the way the movie is made too that makes you think of playing it in a workplace tutorial sense. Right. I think it's cool that Charles Burnett tried it, but there's no part of the rest of his filmography that makes me think that he would be a great practitioner of sort of like the process-driven intrigue department espionage movie. Right. And I don't don't know what is, you know, studio notes and stuff he had to compromise on in post, but there's just something about the basic construction of, of this movie when you're not in an art, like an avant-garde or art house space that like, it just doesn't cut together. Right. Yeah. In many ways it makes like less sense ultimately than killer of sheep. You know, it's like a lot of, yes, the overarching thing makes sense. Like he sees corruption and then he gets caught up in corruption. And then there's like this trial, but also like what happens like the gun was his and wasn't his, but he was still on trial. And then they just kind of dropped it and never talked about it again. You know, it has some like holes. If you're going to play by, you know, the rules of law and order, like you need to have the procedure of the whole thing kind of make sense. But this one, it's just kind of like grandstanding in offices. Like I won't have it. You're out of here. Give me your gun and badge kind of stuff. Yeah. Over... Like, I don't know. For someone so interested in the corruption of a system, it almost doesn't feel like in this iteration of the script, Burnett has any idea what the system actually is. And if you're going to go so deep in the conspiracy whirlpool that we get to, like, city councilman who's a pedophile who we never meet, I need, like, Donald Sutherland on the bench and JFK being like, you know, with fucking lotus eater eyes being like, this goes all the way to the top. Um... You know, this is just sort of like, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this is corruption, and then this is corruption. And it's like, there's no journey, there's no sinking into a subterranean level that makes it seem like unreal. Let me ask you this. Do you think Elliot Gould killed himself because he knew the insurance <laughs> company was on to him? Or was he like killed by the by the Rough Riders? You mean the, Okay. When you start a sentence with, do you think Elliot Gould killed himself? Um, what's that character's name? Greenspan. Greenspan? Um, yeah. Um, oh, I think they're Rough Riders for sure. You think that uh, Michael Ironside Michael killed Ironside. him? Michael Ironside, yeah. I gotta tell Ironside you. Ironside <laughs> is fucking going for it in this movie, which he always does. When have you ever seen Michael Ironside and been like, Mm, he kind of phoned it in today. Ironside is like, do you want 100% evil or 105% evil? What's the actor that he's playing against who's in Blood Simple? M. Emmett Walsh. 
who is still yes. alive. <laughs> There's no way that he survived the filming of The Glass Shield, let alone alive <laughs> to 2020. The man still lives. Can you believe that? M. Emmett Walsh. He, I love his... It's so funny because in this movie, there's a scene where M. Emmett Walsh tells Michael Ironside that he's dying of cancer and he like doesn't have anything to leave his wife and kid. I mean, it's basically the setup to Breaking Bad, but the movie like scores it with this like foreboding, like, you know, while he's telling it. So it's like, oh, yeah, let's hatch this evil plan to split the life insurance with Elliot Gould. And... It's so, because I just feel like a movie like this gets that it's not evil that like keeps corruption going. It's desperation, you know? And if it had made these characters just like not movie monsters, but like overworked detectives a la Zodiac or something where they fucking mean well, they just are out of money and out of time. And this movie has no media, which is weird. There's no like enterprising reporter looking at kind of the only thing it doesn't have. It, I mean, but why doesn't it have that? You know, at one point someone's like, we're going to go to the papers. And I was almost like, I almost forgot. We lived in a media (laughs) ecosystem here. Go to the papers. Uh Why haven't you people go to the papers months ago? Yeah, it's true. Um, Maybe what we're talking about is a problem of perspective. This movie is roaming around way too much when we should just be in JJ's sort of like, it could be much more like The Assistant. I think a smarter movie too has him do a favor for a cop and then to see the cop doing a favor back to him. And so he becomes fully like ingratiated in this like weird clique. And then it becomes even more challenging for him to break that loyalty by pointing out this obvious corruption. But the movie, like, never – I mean, I get it. I get why they're doing it. Like, of course, he's never, like, fully in their group. But I almost wanted to be a little bit more fooled. You know, like, this movie could learn a lesson from, like, the firm. Like, Tom Cruise is never, like, one of them. But he – is believed to be one of them for Mm. like the bad stuff that happens in the movie, thus creating this conflict between like, do I go to law enforcement or do I have my loyalty at this firm? And this movie is, do I go to law enforcement or do whatever? Like that's even more complicated. It's just, it's not nearly as good as the other things that Charles Burnett. It's also just not good. Right. Right. I mean, if you're looking for something that plays like an hour and 45 minute episode of Law and Order, trading in a lot of the larger issues of the present moment uh, in a 1994 context, maybe this is your movie. Yeah, by far the best thing about it actually is just the, the tragedy of history. All this stuff then, all this stuff 20 years before, all this stuff still from these same organizations. I think that this movie just, I know he wrote it, and I think his vision is interesting, but I, I, this just doesn't feel like a Charles Burnett project, as I've come to know what that means through the other titles. There's a funny thing, too, where he's like, we were trying to make a movie with guns and lane changes, was how he described this movie. Nice. <laughs> and I feel like right there, you're like, oh, this is a man who is... Uh, 
you know, too nuanced and soft-spoken to, you know, say car chases and explosions. He looks at a car chase and sees lane changes, and it's just like, yeah, the glass shield is, it's, uh, it's a bad, bad. It is a movie with guns and lane changes, for sure. Um, but I agree. I think it is probably... I mean, it's it's watchable. It's goofy. So maybe it's a bad good for me. All right. You know, it's nice to see Michael Boatman getting a, a shot. It's good to see a lot of A-list, B-level actors getting four minutes of screen time. So as we wrap up uh, Charles Burnett here... Um... I really appreciated uh, watching these. I got to check out My Brother's Wedding. He does have an epic from 2007 called uh, Namibia, The Struggle for Liberation with uh, Danny Glover again and then Carl Lumbly who played um, the more responsible brother in To Sleep With Anger. Um, So yeah, I'm interested to check that out if you want to go further into the future. He did an interview with IndieWire a while back basically talking, you know, advocating that especially in these difficult times that hollywood you know give money to to people who need it we'll see if that fucking happens yes there's some great interviews um that you can read again check out all the criterion channel stuff um he's a very thoughtful man makes very thoughtful films i agree chance thanks for bringing this category to our attention you got it i'm happy to have done it and i'll i'll see you next time Noah. i can't wait This bitter earth Well, what the fruit it bears